Hey everyone, Andrew here. So I was originally thinking that I would post the second season regularly, like once per month or so, once I got it close to ready in like the spring of 2021. But now I'm thinking I'm going to release it more sporadically. As you may remember from the last episode of season one, I have a baby boy now. Life is, as a result, a little hectic and unpredictable. I'm also teaching more than a full-time load because I'm an adjunct college instructor who needs to pay the bills, so it's a uh, weird time of life in so many more ways than one, but I'm uh, still close to done with some episodes and, and much further from done with other episodes, so here's the first installment of season two, but it'll take months to get the second episode done. Life is unpredictable, so without further ado, enjoy the show. Welcome to Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. be your red. Our greens might not be the same. Orange is fierce for me, but for you might be more tame. When I look up at the dazzling depths of the sun-soaked sky above, what for me looks like my blue could be for you what I see in a rosebud. If I describe a color I see, I can only resort to poetry. For what for me is one shade might be for you more like what for me is another. And what you see as peach might be the same as what I see when I look at a totally different color. We may never see the world the same as other boys and girls, but whenever I yell indigo, I see something in my mind and you and yours. When I was looking for a name for the nonprofit I founded to house Reductio, I sent some ideas out to my friends. My friend Michael Fitzpatrick of Season 1, Episode 2 fame sent me a few ideas, and the, the one I fell in love with was Inverted Spectrum Media. And so a new nonprofit organization for producing Reductio was born. What? though, is an inverted spectrum. Today we'll explore the inverted spectrum problem or the inverted spectrum question. The idea is that it's in principle possible that my visual experience of color isn't at all like your visual experience of color. Even though we've come to use the same words for different colors, we have totally different experiences. I might see snow in a way that you would describe as lime green. And you might see an apple in a way that I would describe as hot pink. 
That is, the colors that quote-unquote paint our experience of the world might be inverted from one another. That's why it's called an inverted spectrum, an inverted color spectrum. It's a problem in many ways. First, we tend to think of the world as having a particular set of colors, like objectively. Second, we tend to think of our experiences as revealing the way the world actually is, like objectively. Third, we tend to think of our perceptual experiences as us looking at the world itself, not as looking at what is essentially like an image built up out of information about the world. If my blue is your red and vice versa, then either one of us is wrong or perhaps there is no objective color in the world at all. I talked with Jonathan Cohen, professor of philosophy at University of California, San Diego, about the possibility of inverted spectra. So I'm Jonathan Cohen. I'm a professor and chair in the philosophy department at UC San Diego, where I've been since 2001, so a very long time. Um, I got my PhD in 2000 from Rutgers. And uh, following a postdoc, came to UC San Diego, and it was my first big boy job, and I'm still here. Cohen is a philosopher of perception who specializes in perceptual qualities like color. He even wrote a book called The Red and the Real. I linked to his book in the show notes. I started with a simple question. What is an inverted spectrum? But before I was even allowed to ask that, in true philosopher fashion, Cohen wanted to get another concept on the table. So it sounds like a simple and direct question. I'm actually going to back up even before we begin, because I want to introduce this somewhat technical notion of qualia. Uh, the singular for that term is quale, and the plural is qualia. And the term was introduced, I think, in the early 20th century by C.I. Lewis. Qualia are features of our experiences. In particular, they're the qualitative features of our experiences. Some say some try to abbreviate that by saying the what it's like that we have when we have an experience. Okay, so qualia is a fancy word for the qualitative properties of an experience or the actual features that we experience. So the the tart sweetness of the apple is a quale, and we might think that it is distinct from the chemicals that interact with my taste buds and scent receptors and so on. Over and above the physical interaction that happens when I take a bite of apple, there's this experience of eating the apple, this experience of crunchy, juicy, tangy, sweet, sour. You might think of my experience as being populated by these qualities, and we're going to call those qualities qualia. When you listen to music like the one playing right now, your mind is tracking the melody, the pitches, the rhythm and tempo, the timbre of different instruments and voices, and so on. Your mind might also connect this music with memories, with facts about the artist, and so on. But above all of that, there's also an experience of hearing the music, the what it's like to hear this music. Those further experiential qualities are called qualia. So the, I think the most direct thing I can do um, to explain the notion of qualia is to ask you to reflect on your own experiences. So you've had some experiences, like for example, maybe you've had the experience of tasting espresso. So think about undergoing that experience and think about 
um, the qualitative nature of what it's like for you to taste espresso. It's characteristic. It's distinctive. You wouldn't mistake it for the quality, the qualitative ex- uh, nature of the experience that you undergo when you drink water or when you see red or when you hear a middle C on the piano to name some other kinds of experiences that you could have. So qualia are supposed to be these qualitative features of our experience. To start talking about inverted spectra or spectrums, we need to shift from tastes to colors. So we were talking before about gustatory qualia, like the qualia that you have when you taste espresso, but we can just think about the experience of seeing an isolated red patch, right? We're having a color experience, and we can think about the the quale that goes with that experience. And we can also think about the quale that goes with the experience of seeing an isolated green patch. When I look at limes, I actually have a variety of colors or shades in my experience. There's different luminance and saturation, but what I'm seeing across the lime surface is a variety of shades of green. It's unmistakably green. Um, And when I look at ripe limes, I have, in fact, a green quality. But I can ask, could it have been that I, I had the quality that I now actually get from a green thing when... I were looking at not a green thing, but a red thing, and vice versa. Imagine all the colors that I experience represented in a wheel. You have the reds over to the left, and they bleed into the purples above them, and then the blues to the right of the purples, and further right and a little down, you get greens, and so on. What happens if God made one of us with that wheel rotated 180 degrees, so that when they look at limes, they're having an experience that is similar to what the rest of us experience looking at a red delicious apple? Imagine the experiences that you and I both have when we look at a particular ripe lime. Could my qualia be inverted with respect to your qualia? That's just an interpersonal version of the question that I before formulated intrapersonally. Now, once we've said all this stuff, I mean, I think it's pretty recognizable to most people. In fact, many, many children spontaneously formulate the question, could my experience be very different from yours? They probably don't put in all the careful caveats that I was trying to make just now. But I think the form of the question is very familiar and spontaneously occurs to lots and lots of children, which does suggest rather that philosophy is easily groundable and kind of questions that curious people ask without formal training. Um, That seems right. And in case you're thinking at this point that we're talking about like weird lighting or something, disabuse yourself, dear listener, of such notions. So one caveat to make is we're, we're inverting the experiences. We're not inverting the lights, right? It's natural to ask a different question about could you have inverted the lights or the physical wavelengths or things outside the body? Or in fact, you could imagine inverting parts of our visual system. That's not what I'm asking about. One famous formulation of this possibility comes from a 17th century Englishman, John Locke. Kind of a terrible guy, honestly. He was a slave owner and a really problematic human being, but was perhaps most famously known for his influence on people like Thomas Jefferson and other folks involved in the founding of the United States of America and also France and the like. He had some really interesting things to say and and was really helpfully wrong about a lot of things because he was so clear in his writing and so intuitive and commonsensical in many of his views that he's an easy person to pick on when you're feeling churlish about the common sense views of many ordinary folks, particularly the common sense views of many 17th century Englishmen. Plus, because he was a slave owner, he's totally fair game for picking on, just like Jefferson and Washington. Screw those guys. 
So anyways, here's Locke's presentation of the inverted spectrum question. He says, neither would it carry any imputation of falsehood to our simple ideas if by the different structure of our organs it were so ordered that the same object should produce in several men's minds different ideas at the same time, e.g. if the idea that a violet produced in one man's mind by his eyes were the same that a marigold produces in another man's and vice versa. For since this could never be known, because one man's mind could not pass into another man's body to perceive what appearances were produced by those organs, neither the ideas hereby nor the names would be at all confounded, or any falsehood be in either. For all things that have the texture of a violet producing constantly the idea which he called blue, and those which had the texture of a marigold producing constantly the idea which he constantly called yellow, Whatever those appearances were in his mind, he would be able as regularly to distinguish things for his use by those appearances and understand and signify those distinctions marked by names blue and yellow, as if the appearances or ideas in his mind received from those two flowers were exactly the same with the ideas in other men's minds. So it's sort of like me looking at a marigold and you looking at a purple iris, but both of us having the same quality in our experience. Yeah, so that sounds um, pretty right. One thing to note is that you actually put it the opposite way from Locke. So mm. Locke's way of putting it was, suppose we're both looking at a marigold, and yet there were a difference in the qualia in Jonathan's mind mm. and Andrew's mind. Your way of putting it was, um, imagine we're not both looking at a marigold, we're looking at a marigold and an iris, mm. uh, but yet there's sameness in qualia. But I mean, I think we're getting at the same idea, which is that sameness in the object seen is not inevitably, well, we're asking the question, is it inevitably yoked to sameness in the qualia? And vice versa, is difference in the uh, object seen inevitably yoked to difference in the qualia? This possibility is so disturbing in, in some way because we wouldn't really know that this was happening. So Locke thinks, heck, um, all we have to go on is the coordination of our behavior, our our verbal coordination. And so, so long as those match up in the best possible way, uh, in appropriate ways, in ways that don't obtrude themselves, then we won't actually know whether the qualia, qualia are type identical or not. So one problem we might call the inverted spectrum problem is a problem about what we can know. It seems like we can't know whether our spectra are inverted or not. That's really weird and a little bit troubling, too. He's thinking that the inversion might be behaviorally indetectable. You know, all the methods we have for behavioral detection inside the lab, in normal life, they're sensitive to verbal differences. So if you use the word marigold and I refuse to use the word marigold, then we know we've got a difference. But that's not the scenario we're in. By hypothesis, we both do say marigold. Uh, moreover, we both use the same color vocabulary right? So you use the word yellow, I use the word yellow. Locke is imagining that despite all that sameness, there still might be a qualitative difference. If there were a qualitative difference, then his point is that uh, prima facie, it looks like the labels that we use for the type of flower, for the type of color, they would not pick up on the difference. The qualia would be hiding behind the verbal agreement. Because we're in a sonic medium here, let's try this with musical notes. It turns out to be a bit complex to talk about this because there isn't clearly a fact of the matter about what one should experience. And so it turns out that we can't say if one of us is wrong 
you'll see the verbal gymnastics this creates. So say we're both learning music. Our teacher gives us a note on the piano and says, this is middle C. So far, so good. Except you're hearing this, and I'm hearing this. And then the music teacher says, we're going to move up one full step to D. She plays the D note. But we're different from one another, so I hear this, and you're now hearing this. Then she says she's going to try a chord. Here's a C major chord, and you hear, but I hear. My sound experience is transposed from yours. But we'd perhaps never know it was consistently transposed if I always heard sounds higher than you by the right amount. It might even be that I would learn to hear dissonance as harmony and vice versa. But there are actually fewer problems with color than there are with sound because there may be a certain inbuilt features of sound perception that don't clearly exist in the world of light. The other issue is that we, we make sound voluntarily, so when we start singing, people will probably notice that it's all off. But that gives us the basic idea that if someone had an inverted perceptual experience of some mode like color, then we might never know. Sameness in the application of these color words could still um, hide difference in qualia. That's the suggestion that Locke is advancing. So a couple of quick notes. First off, it doesn't have to be a complete inversion for this to cause pretty much the same amount of concern for philosophers. Though we got the scenario off the ground by asking about 180 degree mapping. In principle, you could ask this question about any mapping. That is, even though we got started with the idea of turning the color wheel a full 180 degrees and switching red with green, blue with yellow, and so on, we could ask the same question, the inverted qualia question, about two people who are only 10 degrees off in their perceptual color wheels or 90 degrees off and so on. Exactly how damaging these other ones are relative to the original one, I guess that depends on what we were doing the damage to, what was the target thesis in the first place. The second thing to note is that people, in fact, do have differences in their perceptual experiences. We know this because they're detectable. If the question is simply, you know, are there psychophysically detectable differences that you can get between color observers? The answer is clearly yes, there are. So this is a really interesting experiment, and it tells us something about not how our perceptual experiences might work in the imagination of philosophers, but instead how our perceptual experiences do in fact work. I think it's worth pausing on this for a second. It's almost like experimentally our perceptual experiences are inverted from one another, or at least slightly off from one another. There are four hues, four chromatic hues, red, green, yellow, and blue, that are such that there's a there's an instance of them that is perceptually unmixed. So there's a red that looks just red. It doesn't have components of yellow. It doesn't have components of blue. There's a green that doesn't have components of yellow, doesn't have components of blue. There is a yellow that doesn't have components of red and doesn't have components of green, right? And then there's a blue that doesn't have components of yellow and doesn't have components of green. When you're looking at a hue of green, say, Sometimes you can tell that it has some yellow in it, other times you can tell that it has some blue in it, but sometimes you get a pure green that to your eye doesn't seem to have any yellow or blue in it at all. This is a perceptually unmixed hue. Now, if I asked you, find the perceptually unmixed orange, 
you're not going to be able to do it because every orange is, is perceived as being a perceptual mixture of red and yellow. There are different ways of operationalizing this in the lab, but um, take my word for it. And the interesting thing is if you ask subjects to do it for orange, they actually will give you an answer because you're paying them. But the, the tell is that what they select for their orange setting is not stable. You do the experiment on them again, they'll just choose another value. Good. So the colors, other than the four unmixed hues, are all mixed because you will perceive them as some mixture of the unmixed colors. Sure, you might say this is unmixed orange right here, but you'd really just be saying that because you'd want to please the experimenter or because you're being paid. You're sort of lying in a way. How do we know? Well, because you won't choose the same shade of orange each time. It's, it's just not stable. Whereas the red settings, the green settings, the yellow settings, and the blue settings are remarkably stable. Not, not for their entire lives because they're changing features of the lens and the cornea. But they are pretty stable. So I'm going to choose the same shades of green, blue, red, and yellow today, and also probably next week. But because my cornea, lens, and other parts of my eyes change over time, and because maybe my vision system and my brain changes over time, I might not select the same shades three years from now, right? So this experiment is interesting. People have really stable hues of unmixed red, green, blue, and yellow. And more importantly, those hues are slightly different for different individuals. But what's the point? What does this have to do with inverted spectrum or inverted qualia? Um, so that means that that is an actual case of a difference in qualia holding fixed the distal stimulus. It doesn't hold everything about the visual systems the same, but it is, it is a difference. And note, by the way, that it's detectable. We've detected a difference in color vision between us, even when the stimulus, the color we're looking at, remains exactly the same. It's almost like we've discovered experimentally that we do in fact have inverted qualia or slightly off qualia. I mean, again, not really inverted so much as slightly off from one another. Now, this isn't quite what someone like Locke had in mind in the 17th century. He was talking about behaviorally undetectable inversions meaning that we would have a change in our experience that we couldn't detect in a lab or by simply talking with one another or holding up color cards and comparing our discriminations with one another. It would be totally undetectable, but nevertheless, our experiences would be different. One lesson we do learn from this vision science experiment is fairly interesting. I guess one thing that undetectability would require is um, a guy who thinks that um, a color category is... Uh, unique had better persist under the inversion in thinking that it's unique. So if you mapped yellow to orange, it's now, you've blown it, right? It's not undetectable anymore because um, before the, the quality that he underwent, he's able to say, oh, that falls in a category with qualia that I experienced from this color category, such that one of them is a unique quality. And, and he would have said that before the inversion, but not after. So to sum that up, we could just say, like, it's a condition of undetectability that the inversion would have to map uniques onto uniques, binaries onto binaries, or another way to put it, it would have to preserve the unique binary structure. In other words, it seems like we can only rotate our color wheel three different ways. One so that red maps onto yellow, which maps onto green, which maps onto blue. One so that red and green are switched, and so are blue and yellow. Or a third option where we map red to blue, blue to green, green to yellow and yellow to red, right? 
We have to keep the unique hues unique, or else we will be able to detect that someone sees orange when looking at a banana, because orange isn't a unique hue. So the idea of inverted qualia or inverted spectra is that we could be having totally different color experiences without there being a difference in our behavior related to color. We would still have the same conversation when deciding how to paint our house. This hue is too ashy, that one is too mauve, this hue has a bit too much purple in it. All those conversations would go exactly the same if our qualia or our color experiences were flipped from one another because we all learn to use color experience in basically the same way. So that's the basic thought. Let's take a break, and then we'll talk a bit about why the possibility of an inverted spectrum case might pose a challenge to certain theories of qualia and of the mind. So because I'm leaving everybody with not that regular of uh, episodes from Reductio, I figured what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a series of links to philosophy podcasts that I've come across that I've enjoyed in the discussion notes. So you'll find a a pretty large list of different podcasts in the discussion notes from different philosophers and from some people who are just interested in philosophy. Uh, Some of them are more open form conversational podcasts. Some of them are long form interview podcasts with philosophers. Some are based on sort of uh, popular cultures. Some are based more squarely on philosophy and philosophical ideas. Others are about what philosophers do when they're not academic philosophers. So there's a lot there for you to explore, and I hope you enjoy exploring. Welcome back to Reductio. We're talking with Jonathan Cohen today about the possibility that we might experience the world quite differently from one another without either of us knowing that this was the case. This is sometimes called the inverted spectrum question, or maybe the inverted spectrum problem, because it poses a problem for certain naive ideas about color perception. Uh, Ideas like that we experience the colors of the world directly. But it also poses a problem for certain really sophisticated attempts to reduce experiences or qualia to other sorts of properties. A reductionist, we'll call them for simplicity's sake, even though philosophers will quibble about what to call these folks, a reductionist will say that our color qualia or our color experiences should be reduced to something more scientifically tractable or testable or explainable. So our qualia just are dispositions to behave in a certain way, like to verbally describe irises as purple or lavender or something like that. Or our color experiences just are certain judgments we make about the world, and judgments can be compared and mapped by scientists. According to these reductionists, we can reduce color experiences to something more physical or studyable by scientists. If it's actually possible for us to have inverted color experiences, though, then it follows pretty directly that reductionism about color experiences is false. So two quick thoughts about this. One, it's not obviously possible for us to have inverted spectra. We we don't know that that's true. Two, it's not obviously possible because think about what that would mean. Our brains would have to be undetectably different in their processing of color. 
there would have to be no physical part of us or process within us that's different or recognizably different while at the same time having different color experiences. This isn't clearly possible. It feels like we need more of an argument that it will be possible. It does seem like it's a scenario that we can conceive of. There's no internal incoherence in the scenario or anything. There's nothing incoherent or inconceivable about the inverted spectrum scenario, we might think, but that doesn't mean that it is, in fact, possible. This gets to the question that is a big question in analytic philosophy. Does conceivability entail possibility? I'm not going to go into it here, but that's a good place to look if you're interested in following this rabbit hole further. I want to close the episode here with a poem from a friend. Troy Jollimore teaches philosophy at my alma mater and current department, California State University, Chico. He's also, though, a published poet. I chose his poem, The Solipsist. It plays on similar themes as does the inverted spectrum question, and so it seems apropos for our discussion today. So a solipsist is someone who believes that they are the only real mind, that everything outside of them is a projection of their mind or basically a hallucination. All of the things they see, the animals they interact with, the human beings they talk to, are all figments of their imagination. If there are other minds, then we experience totally different realities, and we probably don't experience any other people in any real way. We're all stuck in our own heads, if there are more of us than just one, that is. This theme of being stuck in your head and not knowing what's quote-unquote out there in the real world dovetails nicely with the central skeptical problem that I see presented by the inverted spectrum possibility. If we don't experience the world in the same way, if it's possible that we experience the world in radically different ways, then what is the real world? Is there an objective world or is it just a projection of our minds? These are fun things to think about, and I hope this poem is as thought-provoking for you as it was for me. Here's Troy Jollimore reading his poem, The Solipsist. The Solipsist Don't be misled. That sea song you hear when the shell's at your ear, it's all in your head. That primordial tide, the slurp and salt slosh of the brain's briny wash, is on the inside. Truth be told, the whole place, everything that the eye can take in to the sky and beyond into space, lives inside of your skull. When you set your sad head down on Procrustes' bed, you lay down the whole universe. You recline on the pillow. The cosmos grows dim. The soft ghost in the squishy machine which the world is, retires. Someday it will expire. Then all will go silent and dark. For the moment, however, the blackness is just temporary. The planet you carry will shortly swing back from the far nether regions. And life will continue, but only within you. Which raises a question that comes up again and again as to why God would make ear and eye to face outward, not in.
Thank you for joining us on Redactio. You listening to the program is the reason I make it. Please consider sharing with friends, mentioning us on social media, and so on. There's a share link for this episode in the show notes, and you can just share the basic website at shows.acast.com slash Redactio as well. As I said at the top, I'll be releasing season two slowly over the next year, not on a fixed schedule. That fits with my desire to get these episodes published as soon as they're ready without feeling the pressure to publish them every month or on a regular schedule, given my other obligations in life. Thank you so much to Jonathan Cohen for walking us through the intricacies of the inverted spectrum question. Thank you also to Troy Jollimore for sharing his poem, The Solipsist, with us. Thank you to our loyal Patreon supporters. Your support means so much to me, especially at a time when I'm not able to produce episodes regularly. If you want to support us on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash reductio. There's a link in the show notes. Until next time, I'm Andrew Lavin, and this has been a production of Inverted Spectrum Media. Inverted Spectrum Media has an intern for the year, so thank you so much to Xing Jin Guang for editing help on this and other episodes. Some of the music is also hers.